Thank you for being here this morning for chapel. It's always good to be here. And uh, I just have to say it's better today to be here with you than it has been recently when I've been called in an emergency pinch, pinch hitting situation. Uh, it's good to be able to know that I was preaching according to a schedule at a fit in time when I actually could prepare a message to preach. Man, what a difference it makes to have some time with the Word of God before you're standing in a pulpit uh, trying to pre preach to God's people. So thank you for being here. The privilege is mine. And I just want to say that uh, outside of the free gift of God, which is salvation that comes only through Christ Jesus, and the incredible gift of the indwelling Spirit of God in my life, is the gift of having served as faculty in this great seminary since 1996. And as great as that is, one of the things that I am most thankful to God for is bringing into my life my wife, Lisa. Lisa, would you stand? My wife of... 44 years, whom I've known for 47, so she was mentored by Chrysostom. Yes. <laughs> so, thank you for being here. Let's look to the Lord before we find our way to Job chapter 1, which will be our text that we're going to look at this morning. So find your place even right now to Job chapter 1. And join me as we pray and ask God's blessing upon our time together. Heavenly Father, we assemble before you now, Lord, to hear from you. Not from a man, not from a preacher, but from you. From your word which in complete agreement with the Apostle Paul, as he had in mind the Old Testament, that these were written for our instruction. So, Lord, as we look into Your Word this morning, we want to be instructed by You. Father, I pray that right now You will impact the lives of every man and every woman seated before me, and myself as well, Lord, as I preach this passage of Scripture, impact our lives. Lord, I pray that we will not be the same as we leave this place, as we came into this sanctuary. Lord, teach us through Your Word this morning how we are to respond to You and what You are doing in our lives. Father, may we see the great practical righteousness of Job. And may we catch just a hint of the error of His way. And may we be instructed by both that our righteousness can be improved because of what we understand from 
this great saint of God, and then Father, what needed most to be improved in his life is a sore need for every one of us this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us about that as well. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. And Lord, I pray that our lives would afford to you the glory and the honor that you rightly deserve. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If I knew then what I know now, I would have, and you can fill in the blank from there, every one of us in dozens of ways looking over our lives and the time passed when we came to a fork in the road when decisions had to be made, when a choice had to be made, we made a choice, we made a decision based upon the information we had accrued at that time. However, now looking back on those events with what we now know from the Word of God and the experience of life, there's not a one of us who can look back on the pathways of our lives without saying, if I knew then what I know now, I would have basically done differently in many different ways and many different times. And so it is for each one of us. And as I'm thinking about that principle, that universal concept of looking back over mistakes that have been made, how I, as sure as you do, think of lost friends, co-workers, family members who live every day of their life suppressing the knowledge of God, living out of their sin nature, seeking the sin that they love every day of their life. And when they've drawn their last breath, how they will for all eternity be playing out in their mind moment after moment after moment. If I knew then what I know now, I would have bowed my knee to Jesus Christ. I would have followed Him faithfully according to the Word of God every day of my life. Oh, how I would have changed my life. Well, praise the Lord, that is not our mistake. We are destined for the Bema seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment. Our sin are dismissed from us. We possess a positional righteousness. We are declared righteous, holy, and receivable in the presence of God. But about righteousness, that is a thing that I fear that every one of us do not understand fully enough. I'm talking about not our positional righteousness, but a practical righteousness. And what I want us to understand this morning is how God places an opulent 
value. That's the only way I can express it, as an opulent value upon the practical righteousness of His people. And there is the point of my concern. I think too many, too many blood-bought Christians are filled with the idea that it really doesn't matter how I live. It really doesn't matter what I do from day to day. It's all under the blood, and my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Before the foundation of the world, my friend, that is incredibly eternally true, and I seek to take nothing away from that, but we must understand the opulent value that God places upon our practical righteousness, living in a sin-filled world in a way that brings Him glory and honor, circumstance by circumstance, day by day throughout our lifetime. We're going to come to a passage of Scripture this morning that's going to help us. I pray it'll help us exceedingly. We're going to be looking at Job. And Job was a man who was exceedingly righteous. There is no doubt about that. We're going to get a glimpse just in our time this morning is seeing this incredibly righteous man. And we're going to see just the beginning point at which God was perfecting the great righteousness of Job. Oh, it was extraordinary, the practical righteousness of this man. But God was not taking Job as he was. He was improving. He was perfecting that righteousness. And we will just get a start, just get a beginning glimpse of that process of perfecting this great man of the faith, his practical righteousness. Now, I got to tell you, Unless we understand our passage thoroughly and we agree with it fully, if we fail to do that, then the error of Job's way will be our way and it will mark us all the days of our life until we as Job get past that. If you're familiar with the book of Job, you may recall that in Job chapter 10, he was dialoguing with an unworthy counselor, one of his three friends by the name of Bildad. And Job said to Bildad, in effect, oh, how I wish I had the opportunity to contend with God. If I could contend with God, I would contend with Him. And he explains how and why he would carry that off. And Job thought he was man enough to do that. And he thought he had a platform enough to do that until God showed up for the showdown. God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. And what is only a blistering interrogation, God posits to Job 70 questions and six assertions that one by one whittle that platform away that he has no grounds of contention before God. In Job chapter 40, verse 1, it says this, Then the Lord said to Job, Who is the fault finder that contends with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. 
And that was only one question and one assertion of 70 and 60 that put Job in his place. We see Job in Job 42. He is covering his mouth. He is tapping out. He's throwing in the towel. He says, that's it, Lord. I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job was saying, in effect, God... My great big mouth and my itty-bitty brain and my pride-filled heart wrote a check that I cannot cash. Void it, Lord, and I swear I will never write another one. Job had to come to the place in the difficulty in the midst of all the grueling agony that he had traversed where he rooted out that point of contention with God. And my friend, I'm telling you that Job's error will be yours unless we understand what God is doing. He is perfecting our practical righteousness. He is maturing our faith with all the trials and the difficulties He brings into our lives. Listen to me. In the midst of our pain, we cannot fail theology proper 101, point one, Psalm 119, 68. Thou art good and thou doest good. My friend, that never changes. In the midst of all your turmoil, of all your affliction, of all your heartache, of all the difficulty of your life, my friend, God is only good and He only does good. And we need to retrieve that in the midst of our pain. So I'm preaching this passage of Scripture to you this morning with the purpose that every one of us will not just see again, oh, it's about trials and suffering, and God does that for our good and His glory. Yes, He does that. Yes, He does that for the maturing of our faith. Yes, He does that for the perfecting of our righteousness. Yes, He does that so we can be a more fit example to the lost. Yes, He does that so we can edify and encourage unbelievers. He does all of that, but unless... We get our hearts around and agree with God and are on the same page of, as God that His opulent value for our practical righteousness in this sin-filled world must be our opulent value. And my friend, that is a chasm that we must cross. And I want to help you to cross that this morning as we look at this passage. Job chapter 1, I hope you're there. We're going to see in this passage, in Job chapter 1, two insights regarding God's opulent value of the perfecting of practical righteousness in the lives of His people. Two things we're going to see. Basically, we're going to see how great Job's righteousness was from the beginning as we come to chapter 1. And as great as that is, we're going to see God beginning that process of perfecting that righteousness. 
So two insights, here they are. Number one, a God-focused life is the catalyst, a God-focused life. Mark that. That's what we must see. A God-focused life is the catalyst for practical righteousness in the lives of His people. Let's come to our text, Job chapter 1. Look at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. This is the area east of the promised land, the Arabian desert, whose name was Job. Now notice this. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Stop right there. Now, as we see Job's God-focused life, there's three things that we must understand from our text, verses 1 through 5. Three things about his righteousness. First of all, righteousness fears God and hates evil. We have to come away from that from this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 1 again. His name was Job. Now, notice how Job is defined here. And that man was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Four things are being said that define who Job is. There are two inner qualities. There are two outer conducts in this fourfold display here. First, notice this inner character. Of Job. He was blameless. The outward conduct, he was upright. He craved, he clamored only to that which was righteous, which was right in the sight of God. But notice this I think this is even more impressive and more significant and more instructing for us. This inner quality of fearing God. And notice the outward conduct of that inner quality. Look at it in verse 1. And turning away from evil. I tell you, it absolutely sickens me today when I hear so many preachers talking about the fear of God and they do hermeneutical trigonometry on so many texts of Scripture so that they say the fear of God is anything other than the fear of God by the time they get through with their handling of the Word of God. I want you to know that anybody who says or writes differently from this, the fear of God can only be known is that which drives you away from evil. And if it does not do that, you do not know the fear of God. Job feared God, and it turned him from evil. He was a God-focused man. That was the condition of his life. To buttress that just for a second, let me give you a few passages of Scripture. Listen to Proverbs 3, 7. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. See that connection? You can't separate those two. How about Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, which says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, buy 
The fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. You show me a man or woman of the faith who has a problem with evil, and I will show you a man, I will show you a woman who has not the fear of God in their heart. My friend, that's how it works. That's how it works today. That's how it's always worked. That's how it worked in the heart of Job. He was a God-focused man. That's how it worked not only in Job, but in the lives of many others. Let me just give you one other example. You remember Joseph? Joseph, yes, turned in by his brothers. We know the narrative. There he is in Egypt. Genesis chapter 39. He is working under Potiphar. He turns over everything to Joseph. Only his wife he has kept back from Joseph. Potiphar's wife was filled with seduction toward Joseph. She comes to him one day and makes her pleading to Joseph. You remember what Joseph said? My master has turned over all things to me except for you. How could I do this great evil and sin against my master? Right? Is that what he said? That is not what he said. However, if he would have said that, we would have said, what a great godly man. What a practical, cogent, clear-thinking man. How could he do this to his master who had so graced his life? But what did jo Joseph say? We find it, Genesis 39, verse 9. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? You see, my friend, that's how it always is. And godly people, they fear God. We have to apply what Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says in every conceivable way, not just in fearing God and turning from evil, but we have to put watchmen around our hearts. The Word of God says, watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. How a man, how a woman coronates God in the heart determines the pathways of that man's life, of that woman's life. As the heart goes, so goes the pathway of life. And here was a man, a great and godly man. Oh, look at it. Look, look at verse 8 just for a second. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered, notice this, my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning from evil. Job was God's great boast to Satan. Look what I've done in this man's life. He is my servant. Look how he is, blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning from evil. God's great boast was the practical righteousness of this godly man. We've got to watch over our hearts. 
with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Listen to me. Life is hectic. Life is demanding. Life is taxing. It brings to us many things that we must give our attention to. But I'm telling you, in the midst of all of our responsibilities and all that we must do for the glory of God, everything has to, has to be blurred in a haze in the backdrop. And the only thing that is always clearly in focus is God. A God-focused life is the catalyst for practical righteousness in the lives of His people. So we see, first of all, righteousness fears God and hates evil. But secondly, of three things, we need to see righteousness is not diminished by profound blessings from God. Righteousness is not diminished from the most profound blessings of God. That was true of Job. He was so focused on God that when God opened up the treasures of His blessings and poured them out on Job, His righteousness was not diminished one fraction of an iota. Look at our text again. Look at verse 2. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And his possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. What is he saying here? It's showing the opulent blessings how God had blessed, how God had so blessed the life of Job. I mean, look at this. He had 10 children and he had 7,000 sheep. Now you've got to understand, it sounds like that, that Job was a zoo owner. No, this is indicating the wealth of Job. Wealth was secured in animals and land at that time. And look at this, 7,000 sheep. What prodigious wealth Job had right there. 7,000 sheep. I want you to think for a moment, sheep, meat, milk, wool for clothing and textiles. Oh, 7,000 sheep, you got to think Walmart. Notice this, 3,000 camels. You know what a camel was referred to? A ship of the desert. 3,000 camels, he was there in Arabia from the Far East to Europe. The Silk Road traveled right through Job's home, and he has three, he has three thousand camels. Think Mersk shipping. Notice this: five hundred yoke of oxen. Five hundred yoke of oxen. That's going to till a lot of land. Think John Deere tractor. Yoked oxen can pull heavy cargo for long distances. Think J.B. Hunt trucking. 500 female donkeys. Pack animals. Good for short distances. Hauling goods for short distances. Think Federal Express. Donkeys 
was the preferred animal to travel from point A to point B. Think of a Ford or a Chevy. I don't want to violate anyone's preferences. Think Ford or Chevy dealership. My goodness, you say, this man, Job, he had his hand in everything that was lucrative, everything that was profitable. You bet he did. Notice how he's described. Look at verse 3 again. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. He was the greatest man of all the East. That's exactly right. But look at verse 8 again. Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless man, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Job worked his life through the peril that wealth and riches that mammon can bring to the soul of a heart of a man or woman. He negotiated that course wisely. There was no one richer than Job. And at the same time, there was no one with a greater practical righteousness than Job. I won't take the time to remind you of the very many passages in Scripture that deal with the Word of God. I, I'm going to trust that you know them by heart. Jesus says no one can serve two masters for he will either love the one or hate the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. Now listen, you can have mammon and serve God, but you can't serve God and serve mammon. Paul says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Possessing money is not the root of all evil, but the love of it. For many of them with strong affection have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves through with a strong pain. Yes, the seeking of it can ruin you. Job had, it, had wealth like no other, and yet it did not deter him from unparalleled righteousness. Look thirdly, and this may be the crowning point of his practical righteousness. This is incredible to me. Verses 4 and 5. Righteousness abhors a lessened significance of God. Righteousness will not even put up with the precept or the possibility of a lessened significance of God. And this was not true of Job about his own life. This was true, potentially, about the lives of his seven sons. Look at verses 4 and 5. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would sit and invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would sin and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, notice this, perhaps Job didn't even expect this. He said, perhaps. He didn't suspect that it was a possibility, that it was an actuality, but just that it was a possibility. Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This Job did continually. 
Now, there's two ways that we can see this. Maybe it was that Job was afraid that within the heart of one of his seven sons, that within his heart, he had sinned and cursed God. Cursed God from the heart. An overt thing. That's a possibility. But maybe it was just this. That what Job was fearing in the hearts of one of his sons was the blessing of a farewell. A blessing of a farewell to God. That beginning point of distancing one's life from God. I believe it was the latter that Job was fearing. He was fearing just the prospect at the beginning stage of one of his sons beginning to distance himself from God. And because of that, Job would do all of this sin for his sons, consecrate them, rising up early, providing a burnt offering for their potential sin. And he would do this continually. You see, Job was a God-focused man. This was the catalyst for practical righteousness in his life. We need to see very quickly our second insight. Insight number two, a fervent worship of God, a fervent worship of God is the result of practical righteousness in the lives of His people. Now we're going to have to take a spin through our text. Notice how it reads. Look at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, would you notice in this dialogue, in this encounter with Satan and the Lord, that God is the, always the first one to speak. That God always sets the boundaries on what He allows in His people. And God always has the last word. We would see that in Job chapter 2 as well. From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Has thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast noticed this. He has it right. Satan has this absolutely right. Thou has blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse thee to thy face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put your... Put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now it happens. I want you to see this incredible event. Let your eyes follow verse 13. Now it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house that a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the, slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone 
have escaped to tell you. Look at verse 16. Incredible. While he was speaking, while he was speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another came also and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18 says, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job looks up and there are four servants coming to him. One just in front of the other, in front of the other, and in front of the other. And in rapid fire succession, he hears these four horror stories. Job has gone instantly on one day from the greatest man of the East to the least of the East. He has been totally wiped out. Everything that he has is now gone. But I want you to see very quickly from our text about a fervent worship of God. The righteous worship God amid terrible affliction. What did Job do at the reception of that report? What did he do? Look at your text. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. You have never experienced a day like that. It is probably never going to be possible that you could experience a day like that. Job experienced that day, but look at his response. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped. But you've got to understand, this was a day like Job had never encountered in his life. He was worshiping God, but he was worshiping God in an unparalleled fashion. This had never happened to him in his life. He could never respond to God in worship the way he could respond to God in worship on that day. Some of you today are boycotting worship of God because of the severity, the hardship, the difficulty, the pain and the suffering, the tribulation of your life, then you're saying, when the seasons of my life change, when a preferable season comes my way, then I will worship God. No, you won't. This is your opportunity to worship God in unparalleled purity. In unparalleled fervency. You've got to understand Job was doing this because of the overwhelming onslaught that had assailed him. 
Here's a man who is struggling with grief the way we cannot comprehend. He tore his clothes. He shaved his head. These weren't daily realities of Job. He falls on the ground and he worships. My friend, I want to tell you, the difficulties of your life just bring to you a brand new context for you to worship God like you have never worshipped Him before. Secondly, the righteous view all circumstances as grounds to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord? Is that what Job did? We know that he worshipped, but he blessed the Lord? Yes, look at our text, verse 21. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave. Notice this. Look at verse 21. And the Lord has taken away. He didn't say the Lord gave and Satan has taken away. No, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave. Bless the Lord. The Lord has taken away. Bless the Lord. I came into this world naked. I know that I'm leaving it just the same. It's fine with me if I end up naked right now. God is the same as He's always been the same. Listen to me, child of God. Your circumstances only give you a new context and a new opportunity to worship God like you've never before worshipped Him. They do not prevent you from worshiping Him. God cannot change. Thou art good, and thou doest good. That's right. That's true of your life and mine. That's how it has to be for everybody. It can only be that one way because God never changes. If God was ever worthy of praise... God will always be worthy of praise. Your circumstances will change, but God never does. We can worship Him. You say, well, okay, I, I see that Job was a man of great practical righteousness. And I see that God was going to work on Job, that He was perfecting that practical righteousness. But what is it going to take for me to really ascribe, to really sign on, to value as God values? Practical righteousness in the lives of His people. Practical righteousness from me, from my life. How can I get there? What is it going to take for me to adopt and then maintain, once I adopt, God's opulent value for the practical righteousness of His people. Well, quickly, I want to spot you three helps from the life of the Apostle Paul, just very briefly. Three things that will help you. 
Child of God, I'm telling you right now, you need to make a commitment so that the error of Job will not be the error of your life in Christ that marks your life. We can learn from the Apostle Paul, a man who was very familiar with difficulty and tribulation. Number one of three, here's a commitment. I trust you're going to be willing to make it. I will not allow, I will not allow anyone or anything to divert me from committed service to the Lord. Listen, that is well within your volition. You can make that commitment. No matter what circumstances crop out in your life, you are in control in your service to the Lord. You can make that commitment. I will not allow anyone or anything divert me from committed service to the Lord. You say, well, where do we get that from? 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We see in the life of the Apostle Paul, he had these adversaries, these super apostles who were finding their way in the life of the Corinthian church, saying false things about Paul, trying to bring him down in their eyes. And some were signing on to that and siding against Paul. And Paul knew that. These were adversaries. And he talks about them and him. And he says, listen, I bear the marks of a true apostle. I mean, and he goes through this hit list of all the stuff that he has done in his service to the Lord. It is a horrific list of details. But here's the verse I want to bring you to. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says in verse 28, apart from such external things, apart from such unmentioned things, things that I haven't even mentioned above, there is daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Paul's saying, listen, I know of these adversaries. I know of all this adversity. But besides all of that, this is the abiding reality. There is only the daily pressure of the concern for all the churches. His commitment was not diverted one iota, regardless of the adversaries, regardless of the adversity. He was right on tack, serving the Lord in full commitment. Secondly, I will boast in what God withholds from me. I will boast in what God withholds from me. And most gladly, I will boast in His grace that brings contentment. 2 Corinthians again, chapter 12. We know that Paul had a thorn in the flesh and Paul wanted this thorn removed. It made him weak and he wanted it out of there. Three times he prays to God. God is not moving it. He's not taking it out of his life. God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul's response to that is, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. My friend, you're going to be beseeching God for things in your life, and God knows better than you. There is no way 
He's going to provide that for you. It would be to your ruin. But in, in such withholdings, you will see, if you keep your eye on God, His all-sufficient grace, which will bring you contentment that your prayer request never could. Finally, number three, I will count all things as loss. All things as loss to know the surpassing value of Christ and the fellowship of His sufferings. And my friend, I want to tell you something about your difficulties and your hardships. It provides you a unique opportunity, not just for your worship, but for you to know Christ in a way you've never known Him before. The fellowship of His sufferings. You can join Him in that and have a unique experience of fellowship through your daily hardship, which He has intended only for the perfecting of your righteousness. So you get an upgraded righteousness and a unique fellowship with Jesus Christ. What a bargain is that? Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the trials that You brought Job through, for the instruction that we can receive from those events. Thank You, Father, for the suffering of the Apostle Paul, how You showed him how much he must suffer for Your name's sake, and how well we are equipped because of his sufferings. Father, I pray that we may always trust You and always worship You and always praise You and never doubt You and always understand that You are good and You do us good and You are great and You are greatly to be praised. In Jesus' name, I pray that it will be so for each one of us. In His name, Amen.